a little bit. Trinity, you have helped us beyond anything we can imagine. So thank you. Um, Most of you have seen me around over the years. Linda is actually the really good news in this whole operation here. And sometimes you don't actually see her, but um, here she is. I want her to say good morning and whatever else she wants to say. There are a lot of you out there. So deep deep breath. breath. (laughs) I asked George if I could just have um, not even two minutes to also thank you for your participation in the Global Bag Lady Project all these years. I cannot remember when we started this project, but it's been a long time, and you guys have been so faithful. I have all kinds of stuff back there made and designed by our women in um, Kenya. Well, actually, all over the continent, gathered in Kenya. And I have one email. There's one woman that I email, not email, text, actually. She's sitting in her little hut with her little phone texting me while I'm sitting in my little house in Maine. Just amazing to me. Anyway, she wrote this to me this week when I said, Mary, we're having a sale this week. Be in prayer. She said, I pray daily for you, for the sales of our products, for our customers. God, I pray that God will secure your jobs, your businesses, so that you can have enough money to buy one of my bags. When you buy one of my bags, you have no idea what that means for me. Only God knows. It means a lot to me and my family. I wish I was there with you. I sure do, too. I wish you could meet Mary. Uh, We could sell together, laugh together. We'd have a good time, which we would. So I just wanted to say thank you on behalf of all of the women in um, Kenya. And um, thank you to you all for participating in this for so many years. It's so cool being married to a bag lady. I have a thank you also to pass on. Uh, That face that you see on the screen is Pastor Stanlas Dambuki. And he's in Kenya, and he's in Nairobi, and he's pastored faithfully in the slums, which is, I mean, I can't describe that to you. Um, A church called AIC, African Inland Church, Huruma. Now, the next picture is his family. Uh, Some of those are his biological kids. Others are just kids he's absorbed when family members uh, probably died of AIDS. So he's got a big family now. And uh, more than a year ago, I shared this picture with you, this next one, um, of their church being demolished. Just, it was corruption. It was a bunch of nasty thugs in the city, and they just came and tore down our building, which we labored so hard to... To put up, and, and it was a great worship center and a center right there in the middle of the slums. It wasn't very pretty, but it was effective. So they lost it. So last year, for Thanksgiving, a whole lot of you gave a gift to help them get their building back. And uh, some of you are wondering, whatever happened to that money? Renner walk off with it again? No, actually it got sort of buried in a bank account. And uh, 
at the close of this year's fiscal year at Trinity, um, the treasurer, Ted, said, we got some money here. I don't know what this is for. Anybody know what this is? And we discovered it was a Thanksgiving offering. And so Ted zoomed it over right away to the mission, and I shot it to Nairobi. And guess what? The timing was perfect, (laughs) as God's timing always is. Because this very day, that little group of, there's probably uh, 150 of them worshiping, they had a fundraiser to try to raise money to buy a piece of land where they could put up a new building. So our gift, your gift, is arriving on Tuesday, and it will top off whatever they give in their little fundraiser over there. And, you know, this is like, okay, churches have fundraisers, big deal. Most of these people exist on $2 a day. And yet they're giving generously. And this is their second fundraiser, and they want to raise $10,000. And I think your gift is going to be like half of that. (laughs) So they're probably going to make it. So glory to God. I just had to pass that on to you. Pray for Pastor Stan Loss. And he does send very sincere thanks to all of you for your generosity and for remembering him. For remembering him. Now, I, I want to talk to you about uh, a problem and, uh, I believe, a solution this morning. Um, there's been a lot of press this week and the last several weeks about a survey. And uh, the news coming out of this is not good. Look, look at this next slide here. The American Evangelical Church, that's our branch of the movement, is in trouble. This is work done by a public research, public religion research institute. They do this annually. These aren't evil people. These aren't secularists. They're not out to get us. They don't hate the church. They're just trying to be honest researchers. So don't shoot the messenger. We need to hear this, even though it's very painful. Um, Here's some of the things that they said. Next slide. U.S. is steadily becoming less Christian and less religiously observant. They said perhaps 2019, for the first time since the United States was established, a majority of young adults here do not identify as Christian. Trinity is the exception to all these trends, but this is where we live, isn't it? They said only 49% of millennials consider themselves Christian compared with 84% of Americans in their mid-70s or older. So us old guys, we're still willing to say, yeah, I'm Christian. There's a generation coming up for whom that is not a meaningful association. The share of American adults who regard themselves as Christian has fallen by 12% percentage points in just the last decade. Ouch. This this makes me, this is devastating. This makes me weep because I've given my life to serving the church, to equipping men and women, to serve God's movement. And so, you know, I'm afraid I'm going to get sued for malpractice, actually. 
much more serious than that, isn't it? This is the reputation of Jesus, the Lord of glory. It's even more personal for me and Linda because we have a daughter, a young woman now, groomed in this Sunday school in her early years. She's very, very, very hesitant to identify as an evangelical Christian. I think she still believes in Jesus. Doesn't like what the church seems to represent these days. So this gets me as deeply as you can get me. Why? Raise the question. Uh, And I know this is complex, so this is going to be an oversimplification. We can have a long discussion and email exchange over it at some point. But let's be clear about one thing. The church is not diminishing because of persecution here in America. We are not persecuted. Folks, I know persecuted Christians in northern Nigeria, and we're not them. So let's not be martyrs about this, okay? We're not like the early church. And again, I mean, my first tendency is to want to quarrel with the data. Like, well, yeah, but I know, yeah, but this, yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's stop for a minute before we present excuses and just say, what is this saying? What is God saying through the voice of research? Okay? And honest empirical research indicates we're alienating people, especially younger people, because they seem to think we don't resemble Jesus. That comes up in all this stuff. For some young people, Christianity is associated less with love and more with hate. How can that be? Again, this is not a condemnation of you or of Trinity. It's national data. And fair or unfair, it's how we're perceived. So, what's the solution to this apparent tragic decline? What do we do? What's the solution? Here's the solution. You know I was going to say that, didn't you? Okay, let's close in prayer. (laughs) Mm, You're not getting off that easy. And, of course, that's the answer I'm supposed to give uh, as a pastor in a sermon, right? Jesus is the answer. But actually, uh, here's here's another picture. I don't think... I don't think this actually happened in Trinity Sunday School, but it's a story about Sunday School. Uh, The Sunday School teacher had the kids there uh, at her knee, and she said, Now, kids, what is brown and fuzzy and climbs trees and eats nuts and has a big squirrel, uh, a a big tail? Gave it away. And a little boy raised his hand and says, Well, I know the answer is Jesus, but it sure sounds like a squirrel. So I don't want to just say a bland, yeah, Jesus is the answer to everything, although he is. Let me tell you what I think I mean. One of the things that shows up, again, in this uh, research is the fact that we don't smell like Jesus. 
What do you smell? <laughs> now, that's a phrase, actually, that's legitimate because Paul uses that expression in 2 Corinthians 3. He says, we give off the aroma of Christ. You remember that one? So, people are supposed to take a nice whiff of Christians or of churches and say, wow, that smells like Jesus. Let me in. I want it. But apparently, in some places, that isn't the odor people are getting, huh? Which is why I'm so glad for what Pastor Sean is teaching you these days. To go back to the center, to treasuring Christ. Christ is the center. And our love for him must be inflamed. And Colossians, where you're studying these days with... uh, with Sean is perfect because it expands our perspective on Jesus. Amazing, isn't it? But please remember the word Christ is not a a cipher. It's not like a code word where we can say Christ, 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 and sort of smuggle in our own meaning to that. And lots of people do that, don't they? there was a a guy down in the uh, rural south. His name was uh, Clarence Jordan. Back in the 60s in the civil rights era, he started an interracial community right in rural Georgia. Almost got killed a hundred times. But he actually wrote this once. Jesus has been so zealously worshipped, his deity so vehemently affirmed, his halo so brightly illumined, his cross so beautifully polished, that in the minds of many people, he no longer exists as a man. By thus glorifying him, we more effectively rid ourselves of him than did those who tried to do so by crudely crucifying him. Which means we can get a distorted perspective of Jesus, even a glorious one. But if it loses touch with the word who became flesh and dwelt among us, then we're in danger of going off the deep end. So what do I want to say to you today? Let let me try to say it simply and then you can, you know, turn on your your, uh, cell phones again. People who treasure Christ... And that's what we are, and that's where we're growing, isn't it? People who treasure Christ are obsessed with mimicking Jesus' lifestyle. We are so consumed with Jesus Christ that we want in every way to be like him. And what's that mean? Well, it means we're drawn to the poor and the outcasts like Jesus. It means... We're resolute in our commitment to nonviolence. We don't strike back. We don't seek to destroy. It means we aggressively forgive. Like Jesus. It, it means we seek to be in sync with the Father in all things. Jesus said, I don't do anything except what I see the Father doing. I don't say anything except what I hear the Father saying. A couple more on the next slide. We're free from slavery to style, status, public applause. Jesus didn't really seem to care. 
It's not where he lived. That was not his priority. We don't condemn or disdain. We're, we're ready to serve and do lowly tasks. We show respect and honor to all persons. Women, that was radical in Jesus' day. Kind of is today in some places, isn't it? Children, immigrants, losers. However, that category gets defined in your in your universe. So we want to be treasuring Christ. We want to be growing in that. And, and that is going to blossom into a beautiful life, a compelling life. You know, what the millennials in the data are longing for, even though they don't say this, is a Jesus-like experience, a Jesus-like community. People want that. And remember, when we get a close-up of Jesus, like like in the four Gospels, I guess part of what I want to say, an application is, let's, let's get out the four Gospels again and try to remind ourselves, what was Jesus like? He was here. He had skin on. He dwelt among us. And remember what we believe about the incarnate Jesus. I'm summarizing it here on this next slide. Jesus is the definitive close-up of Almighty God. In your Colossians study, you've already read the text that says God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ in bodily form. Jesus said it so simply. Whoever's seen me, seen the Father. So you want to get a good close-up of God. Let's read again about how Jesus functioned, what he said, what he did when he was wandering around on earth. That's, that's our best shot. Right? So, I want to take you through just, you know, a little bit of the Gospel of Luke this morning. We're just going to kind of skip around and skip through merrily as we watch Jesus operate. We don't have time to do extensive studies or deep studies. We're just going to pay attention to our Lord. Can we do that? That would be fun, actually. And I hope this is going to just launch you. You're going to say, oh, I need more of this. Oh, yeah, I'm doing this. And good news, no Patriots this weekend. So you've got big blocks of time that you would have wasted watching them stink it up again. Oh, sorry. That's controversial. You got time. Keep going. Keep reading the Gospels. It's our close-up of God. Now, before we do that, I want to pray. Because it's possible to read this stuff and it just bounces off the head. Or it can get inside us through the Holy Spirit and go, Oh, wow. Okay? So... Can you sing and pray? There's a little, little tiny song. Those of you who are old will remember this. Really old, like me. It was called, Open My Eyes, Lord. I Want to See Jesus. You see everybody with the gray hair is shaking their head like, oh, I know. (laughs) Black hair, you don't know this. But either pray it or sing it gently as a prayer. And let's invite the Holy Spirit to open our eyes so we actually see. You good with that?
Open my eyes, Lord. I want to see Jesus, to reach out and touch him and say that I love. Open my ears, Lord. Help me to listen. Open my eyes, Lord. I want. Amen. I want that too. Luke chapter 4. Let me read the inauguration. I mean, this is where the campaign starts. This is the kickoff. Uh, There's stuff that happens before this in Luke, obviously, because this is chapter 4. And you're going to read that next month because that's like the birth of Jesus and all the early years. But chapter 4 is where it all goes public. In uh, 4.16, Jesus returned to Galilee, powerful in the spirit. So he'd just been doing battle with Satan, and now the Holy Spirit has filled him up with power to bring the kingdom. News that he was back spread through the countryside. He taught in their meeting places to everyone's acclaim and pleasure. So at least initially, he's getting great reviews. He came to Nazareth, where he'd been reared. As he always did on the Sabbath, he went to the meeting place. When he stood up to read, he was handed the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written, Quote, God's spirit is on me. He's chosen me to preach the message of good news to the poor, sent me to announce pardon to prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the burdened and battered free to announce this is God's year to act. End of the reading. He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the assistant and sat down. Every eye in the place was on him intent. Then he started in. You've just heard scripture make history. It came true just now in this place. All who were there watching and listening were surprised at how well he spoke. But they also said, isn't this Joseph's son? The one we've known since he was a youngster? He answered, I suppose you're going to quote the proverb, doctor, go heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we've heard you did in Capernaum. Well, let me tell you something. No prophet is ever welcomed in his hometown. Isn't it a fact that there were many widows in Israel at the time of Elijah during the three and a half years of drought when famine devastated the land? But the only widow to whom Elijah was sent was in Sarapta, in Sidon. There were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, but the only one cleansed was Naaman, the Syrian. That said, everyone in the meeting place, seething with anger. They threw him out, banishing him from the village. Then took him to a mountain cliff at the edge of the village to throw him to his doom. But he gave them the slip and was on his way. Well, that's opening day in the Jesus campaign. I I call it the uh, new creation agenda because this passage in Isaiah that he's reading a few verses from. Isaiah had this incredible promise, this prophetic vision of what God is going to do. And, and 
you know, it's just so comprehensive and amazing that you have to sort of call it a new creation. God says in Isaiah, I'm going to make all things new. I'm going to banish disease. I'm going to banish war. I'm going to banish poverty. I'm going to transform communities so they're communities of peace. We're going to fix everything is what Isaiah was saying on behalf of God. So Jesus gets that scroll, reads that section, declaring this is the time when God is going to show up again and begin a process of transforming planet Earth. The Jews in the synagogue knew this is what he was talking about. But then, hi, talk about chutzpah. Jesus says, the scripture's fulfilled now. Scripture's fulfilled now. I'm here. It, the, the reaction of the people is crazy, isn't it? <laughs> like first they're, wow, boy, that, yeah. I mean, that would be like me coming back after a, you know, being away for a few years. And those of you who remember me, I come and I say, well, guess what, folks? Uh, I want to teach you today about the second coming of Jesus. And oh, by the way, I'm the one. You would throw me out and over a cliff, and rightly so, you know. That would be a good thing to do. But these people heard it at first and were amused, mildly pleased. They were okay with it at first. What happened? What set them off? You know what sets them off here in this first incident? It's Jesus suggesting that the mercy and grace and deliverance of God could be for outsiders, people not part of our little group, non-Jews. You know, those kind of people from different ethnic communities, from different social classes. Because the little incidents he cites from the Old Testament, the theme there is God showed mercy to a Syrian. God showed mercy to somebody from up in Sidon. These people could not handle the thought that the mercy of God was huge and extended to the ends of the earth. They thought God just wanted to do them a big favor. Jesus challenged what we could technically call ethnocentrism, meaning me and my type of people, we, the center. God's action. He loves us so much better. And Jesus shatters that illusion. Is that God doesn't love us? That the same love he has for us extends to the ends of the earth. We got to go with that, don't we? That's Jesus' way. That's Jesus' vision. For us, what does that mean today? Oh, I don't know. Who are those nasty people that don't deserve mercy, huh? Who would you just as seen just as soon burn? <laughs> well, maybe God's grace extends to people in the LGBT community. Think that's possible? Maybe even Democrats. Maybe people trying to sneak into our country <laughs> across the southern border. See how big God's mercy is? And if we feel a sense of resentment 
when we think of certain groups, I don't know who your enemies are, but Jesus is going to have to bust that open. Well, okay, let's go to the next thing. So you've just declared yourself Messiah. You've just declared that God's intervening and, and you know, he's going to make everything new. So Jesus keeps going, it says here in chapter 4. And um, incident number one, on the next slide, I'm going to show you what it is, is a demonstration of what the new creation agenda looks like. It's a demonstration of what the kingdom looks like when it starts to unfold. So where does Jesus go? He goes to the next town over. He goes again to speak in the synagogue. And what happens when he gets there, he's uh, doing his sermon and there's a demonized guy in the audience. And they tend to be noisy if the demon acts out. And so there's this big disruption there. And uh, the demon starts shouting at Jesus, according to the text. And this is part of spiritual warfare where you try to overpower the other by, you know, disclosing who they are. So the demon's starting to disclose the truth about Jesus because the demon actually knows that in the spiritual realm. You're the Holy One. You're the Son of God. Jesus says, zip it. In fact, here's what he said. That's a Greek word. It just means shut up. Parents, write that one down. You can use it with the kids. It's not an incantation. It's not like hocus pocus. It's just a simple command. Close your mouth. Jesus speaks. Then he says, get out. The demon is gone. Absolutely overpowered by the word of Jesus. Isn't that great? This is the first, I mean, not the first, but this is a direct encounter with a prisoner, someone who's enslaved by Satan. And they get routed. And I just mention that now because, you know, there's this new fascination in America with, uh, not new, but it's got its own TV show now, right? Can we watch the show Evil? I haven't watched it yet. I was going to educate myself before I talk about it, but I talk about all kinds of stuff I don't know anything about. So, <laughs> so it's a, but it's about a, you know, a skeptical psychologist and a Roman Catholic exorcist guy. And they go into all these really creepy, spooky... I'm not recommending the show, by the way. We got enough problems without filling our minds with that. But, but you know, the cool thing is the Roman Catholic exorcist guy is portrayed really powerfully as a really good guy. That's kind of unusual, isn't it? But my fear with a show like this, if it gets good ratings, we're going to start watching it. We're going to be more and more impressed with evil or fascinated by it, maybe. And, you know, for a Christian, we don't do that because we have nothing to fear. One word from Jesus, one command, the demon is, he's gone. As I was meditating on this, I I kept thinking of that song that Martin Luther wrote about 500 years ago, which is a textbook uh, treatise to teach German peasants who couldn't read about spiritual warfare. It's called A mighty fortress is our God. Some of us think of it as an old hymn, but it's incredible. 
It was instructing these peasants who were terrorized by spiritual forces that in Christ they had no fears. There's a verse that I put up there. I think it's the third verse. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. For God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Take confidence in this, brothers and sisters. If your neighbors are being creeped out after watching this TV show, tell them good news. Tell them good news. Jesus is so much stronger. So, you know, uh, the inaugural event in the synagogue that went, you know, sort of mixed results. First they liked him, then they wanted to kill him. <laughs> That's quite an opening. Then the uh, demonized guy, he's, he's kicked out. Where does Jesus go now? Yeah, I think he's probably tired. He was, you know, had human qualities. So he probably wanted to go somewhere and have a Diet Coke. So he goes to Simon's house, uh, you know, an interested supporter. And wouldn't you know it, right there, he encounters an illness. Simon's mother-in-law is reported to have a fever. So Jesus uh, says he bends over her. He chases the fever out, just like he chased the demon out. And she's restored. Hallelujah. And the lady gets up like, okay, I feel good. And she goes and makes dinner for Jesus. <laughs> Isn't that a great story? So, some of you women are like that. That's exactly what you do. Isn't it? You go and serve somebody. Now, here's why I think this is a great story. I mean, this is the third story. I mean, the second story after the whole thing is launched. And we never get this lady's name. Just referred to as Simon's mother-in-law. So she's a Nobody. From a human point of view, isn't she? She's like a nameless old lady who was sick. But you see that the Son of God, God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, has time and interest and concern as he's launching the new creation to spend some time with a simple woman in a Palestinian village and a maker well. How cool is God, huh? You feel like you're sort of just, yeah, not really that important ever? You feel like sometimes, well, God's got big stuff he's got to deal with and he's helping famous people. I'm just, you know, my problem isn't that big. Why would God care about what's going on with me? Have you ever felt that way? And this is a great story for you. Because at the start of his ministry, to change the world, he reaches down, cares for this simple woman, whose name we never did find out. That's kind of sad. But what an impact. Well, what this is saying, though, is the grace of God is starting to flow now. You know? And that Luke 4.18 which is where Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor, etc. 
that that's starting to be fulfilled, but it's going to be fulfilled not in some giant explosion or cataclysm. It's going to be fulfilled like person, one person and the next and the next and the next, and, the, and that's going to spread out with ripples. So the movement of God to bring his kingdom is very person-centered. And it doesn't depend on big-name celebrities or politicians. That's good news, huh? Wow. So... Next, trotting along around uh, Galilee, he goes down to the lake. And new creation demonstration number three is really, it's an incident. The, The real point of this is that he needs recruits. He needs some apprentices. So this is where he first calls disciples. This is the story about Peter and Andrew doing their fishing Jesus says, I need you to follow me. We've got work to do. The kingdom of God is coming. Come on, let's do this. And they come. And also that incident where, you know, they're, uh, well, it just says Jesus knows fishing. Huh? You guys go fishing? Pray. Who knows? This is the one where Peter, uh, you know, had a really awful night fishing. And this wasn't his hobby. This was his job. Caught nothing. Jesus says, why don't you give it another try? Just go out there. And Peter's like, are you kidding me, buddy? Fished all night. <laughs> Come on. All right, if you say. Goes out, gets 20 bazillion fish, sinks their boat. Very cool. Jesus can help you with your job too, by the way. But the point of it is he needs apprentices and he calls these men. And by the way, these, these are just blue-collar guys. Fishing was not a highly exalted um, profession in the ancient world. I live right now, we're staying in Maine in a fishing village, lobstering. You know, we got like 100 lobster boats in our little harbor. And so there, the guys are all over the place. You know, it's like pickup truck heaven. And uh, you know, a lot of these are really nice guys, but, you know, I don't know if I was going to start a movement to change the world if I'd go down to Owlshead Harbor grab some lobstermen. They just, they, you know, they're just, they don't seem like the best stock to build a movement. Isn't that cool that Jesus doesn't think like me? <laughs> he knows. He knows that these fishermen, actually four come out of that village, they will give their lives for him. And in fact, they did. In fact, they did. So then he moves on. Uh, now that he's got a few guys with him, and he's meandering into another town, and he's accosted by a man who's described as being covered with leprosy. Ugh. I mean, we don't have lepers in our streets, so it's a little hard, again, for us to get this. These guys were uh, legally required to stay away from the rest of humanity. You know, I don't know, here maybe in Nashua, it's like people that live under the bridge and sleep in cardboard boxes. Sort of people, it's like, oh boy, I don't think I want to. You cross the street so you don't have to walk by them. You got some of those? Anyhow, that's who this was. This was the bottom of the bottom of society in their world. An outcast, a diseased man. He says a really cool thing. He says, Jesus, if you want to, you can heal me. That's amazing, isn't it? This guy actually had faith 
in the power of Jesus to be able to fix his situation. He just wasn't sure of the willingness of God Almighty, the healer, Savior, if God was really willing to do anything for him because nobody else in the village would do a thing for him if you want to. First thing Jesus says is, yes, I want to. Hallelujah. Jesus wants to deal with this guy and to make him well. And so he does. And there is an amazing moment in that little story where it says, Jesus reaches out his hand and touches the leper. You know how important that is? Doesn't sound like a big deal. Maybe it is a big deal. First of all, it rendered Jesus ceremonial unclean. The law says, never touch a diseased person. You can read that in Leviticus. So Jesus touches him thereby contaminating himself. I mean, that's what he does when he touches me spiritually, isn't it? He touches me and my sin contaminates him. So it's a parable, but this is real also. But Jesus understood the power, touch, and of human connection and of showing compassion in tangible ways. It probably been a decade since anybody touched this guy. Nobody's willing to go near him. Jesus doesn't just say, all right, be healed. Just keep your distance. Touches him. Which means, you know what he can do for us? He can draw close, touch us. Well, let's just do one more, okay? Or maybe two. Almost, almost done here. And then you've got to carry on after this. The next place he goes, um, he's in a house, and there's this massive... Jam, everybody, word's getting out now. There's healing power, there's compassion, there's grace. This might even be the Messiah. So he's preaching and healing and he's in this house and it is jammed to the walls. And so apparently four guys are coming and they've got a friend who's paralyzed, paraplegic friend. And they're like, oh, we've got to get him in there. You've got to see Jesus. But, you know, there's no way we get through this mob with our stretcher or whatever. These guys would not be deterred. They go up on the roof, right? And they, they start tearing the roof apart. <laughs> and they drop the guy down right in front of Jesus. Now, that is faith, isn't it? That is determination. They will not be deterred. They will get their friend to Jesus. A lot of great lessons in that for us, aren't there? And there's even a very cool statement that Luke makes when he's telling the story. He says, when he saw their faith, he says to the paralyzed man. So apparently our faith can actually be beneficial for some of our friends, even if maybe they don't have great faith. I don't know how that works, but it looks like it's what's going on. So Jesus looks at the guy. He's obviously a a paraplegic. He's on a stretcher. He can't get up. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Uh, Excuse me, that's not why we're here. We got a problem. 
Oh, but that is why they're there, isn't it? Yeah. See, Jesus discerns something that we're whole persons, that body, soul, and spirit are all interwoven, and we don't know what this guy's sins were, if they're better or worse. But healing his soul, mind, his emotions, through a powerful word of forgiveness is as important as his walking. Now, Jesus is also aware that in that crowd, there are a bunch of skeptics and critics, the religious leadership at the time, and they're like, what the heck is this guy doing? He can't, nobody has the authority for, to forgive except God. Now, they think they're bringing Jesus down, but actually they're preaching good theology, aren't they? <laughs> There's an irony, huh? That's right. Nobody can forgive sin against God. And guess who's doing it here? It's God. So Jesus discerns there. You know, they're muttering away over there. Jesus knows what they're saying. And he says, uh, excuse me over there. Let me interrupt. Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk? Oh boy, now we're on the spot, huh? Jesus says, so that you know that I, son of man, have authority to do both. I say to you, paralyzed man, get up and walk. And he does. He gets up and he walks right out of there. Probably with his four friends, although I guess he was like 10 paces ahead of them, huh? God gets glory. God gets glory, and the religious leaders get mad. You do not like what this guy's doing. Jesus is very hungry by then, so he needs a place to eat. So he goes to see Matthew. That's not exactly how the story reads in Luke, but that's how it works out. So the next incident, he meets a tax collector named Matthew. We think traditionally that this is St. Matthew, the guy that wrote the first gospel. So he's the leadoff hitter in in the New Testament. Great saint, isn't he? No, not at this point. A tax collector, I mean, you may not like the IRS, but you don't think that they're like the worst people on earth, I assume. Unless you've been audited, maybe you do. (laughs) But back then, a tax collector was not a reasonably reliable civil servant. He was an absolute traitor. He was one of us, And he went to work for the enemy, the Roman guys who were crushing our bones. So he's collecting taxes for Rome, and he had to deliver the money. But also, he added a little surcharge, like 50%, for himself. So a tax collector was hated because of his his just despicable evil, destroying his own people reaping economic gain from his office, so-called. Nobody liked this guy. Big, 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 big sinner. Jesus says, why don't you give that all up and follow me? We don't know what else he said, but Matthew got up, walked away from it all, and became a disciple of Jesus. To appreciate this, I got to show you. I mean, it's like this is what Matthew looked like. Remember the Godfather? 
So that banquet, what happens next in the story is Matthew says, this is amazing. I have to tell my friends. So he holds this big dinner party so all his buddies can meet Jesus. And they all come, you know? And it's like, here's skinny Joey, and here's uh, Lenny the Lip, and here's uh, Guido the Bone Crusher. And it's like the mafia having dinner. And you know what that tells us? God's grace is big. It's really big. It's huge. As the old hymn says, it's greater than all our sin. Now, I will stop now. And your assignment is to keep reading Luke. And just enjoy it. And just watch the Lord. And learn in a very practical way how to treasure Christ. And then read it again. And then read it again. And then increasingly take one aspect of it and say, Lord, make me like this. I'd like to be more like that. I'd like to not cross the street when I see a leper. I'd like to believe that your grace is for everybody. So this is how we grow in treasuring Christ, by shaping our lives after his life. And remember, these stories that I've just been telling you and summarizing for you, this is a close-up of God, according to our doctrine. This is what God looks like with skin on. So this is our model. This is our example. And as Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, forever. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Jesus, you amaze us. While we see the reactions of these people in the stories, some are just so happy to hear what you say. Some are infuriated because you're pushing them way beyond their comfort zone. Some, Lord, like Peter saying, oh, just get away from me, you're too... Holy, I don't know how to deal with you. Lord, send your Holy Spirit to our minds to open them so we're willing to see you in fresh ways. And send your Holy Spirit into our emotions to heal them because some of us feel like we're just, we're not important enough. Jesus wouldn't bother with me. Restore our broken emotions, oh God. Speak into our hearts, Holy Spirit, that word of forgiveness, that our sins are forgiven. Some of us have heard it as a a, a sermon. We haven't embraced it as true in our own souls. Draw near to us, Lord Jesus. We know you're ready. You're knocking at the door. And if we open it, you will come in. And you'll sit down and have a meal with us. Today we say, come in, Lord Jesus, please come in. Thank you for finishing this story by going to the cross with all of our sin and disease and evil on your shoulders. Thank you for taking the punishment for that so that we really can be part of the new creation. 
And Jesus, we really can't wait till we see you face to face again. Amen.